0: Okay, for the entirety of our last story, I was watching two squirrels engage in a serious slap fight. (laughs) And now they've, like, gone to separate, like, corners of the tree. (laughs) You see the little one down there and then the bigger one up there. Like, they kept, like, going around, like, a branch over and over and over again. And there was, like, a gray squirrel just sitting on a lower branch watching them. It was drama. (laughs) They're so chunky. Like, I literally, like, one caught my eye and I just burst out laughing the other day because it was just so chunky. Oh, I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to 2020! Woo! We're in the future! I'm Elizabeth Vargas, and that other white dude whose name I can never remember when they introduce 2020. You haven't been watching a lot of crime docs lately. No, I have not. I have. (laughs) Which also, by the way, Allie, I've been meaning to tell you this, uh, I agree with your parents, and I am retrospectively angry at you that you went over to your ex's house, because if 2020 has taught me anything, it's that's how women die. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. Uh, if listening to a lot of true crime podcasts have told me, that's how women die. Yes. yes. So um,
0: the next time your parents want to lecture you about that, put me on speaker with them, because I'm going to tag out on, on that one. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it is our first episode of 2020. It is! It is. It, this is rough for us, because it's technically early December. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We have not recorded our Here year Year in review. You. I haven't even started writing my year in review. Neither have I. So... I feel lucky that I got three episodes done for this. (laughs) I'm very impressed. Um, But, uh, so we're in this weird amorphous time bubble blob when you're hearing this for when we're hearing it. So just know we're bringing you new content. It is not going to be timely content.
1: (laughs) That's why I'm doing a a story that has nothing to do with the relevant time around us. Same Zs.
0: Although, no, I think mine was inspired by a new story. But, like, in general, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) So we hope that you had a lovely holiday season, uh, that the wrap up for 2019 hasn't been too bad for you. I'm I mean, like I said, it's December 12th. I would love nothing more than to be able to come to you next week and say, hey, wasn't it bonkers that uh, Trump got impeached and left office and we didn't get to talk about it in our first week back in the new year? It's because we're trying to be smart and get ahead on ourselves.
1: Yes, because we have a lot of things going on. It's yes. holidays. Hopefully, I'm moving. Yeah.
0: I'm just trying not to like collapse in on myself. <laughs> Full depression mode. So,
1: like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Lots going on. <laughs> She's been trying not to become a black hole. It's just like. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's not been going great.
1: <laughs> It'll be fine. It's
0: a It'll be fine. Uh, so yeah, we are back and we're looking forward to this year and we enjoyed our year in review episode last week. Yes, it was awesome. It was? So Good much work. Fun. So awesome. Uh, high fives. High fives. <laughs> oh, future release and Andy are going to regret that. <laughs> 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 we feel yeah. like our fate knock on wood. Um, But on that note, uh, we need to get you off to your little village, your Christmas Mm -hmm. movie village, uh, (laughs) adjacent Life. Uh, So I went first last week, which means you go first this week. So tell me the first Rabbit Holes podcast story of 2020.
1: So this week's Rabbit Holes, uh, Rabbit Hole was spawned by an episode of the podcast Morbid. The hosts were doing listener stories and they were telling this one that heavily featured a hamster. Okay. Oh, okay. This, this can go a lot of ways. Um, well, it was sort of... I, I wasn't really paying that much attention to the story itself. It was... Somebody was talking about how their mom... So they had a pet hamster, and their mom went to check on the hamster for some reason, or to do something with the hamster, when she was getting ready. So she just had, like, her bra and her Spanx on. Okay. And she thought the hamster was dead. Oh. So she was like holding it up against her breasts and like doing little chest compressions Aww. it had just started hibernating. Oh. <laughs> so like the warmth of her bosom brought it back to life oh, so no. then she started talking about the power of her <laughs> bosom to bring things back to life.
0: I would honestly, I'd tell everyone I know about that. Exactly. Like that whole like tell us something about yourself and all like awkward group meets would be that story. <laughs> like my breasts can bring things back to life. Only small domesticated rodents though. <laughs>
1: So, one of the hosts, Ash, was, uh, said something along the lines of, where did hamsters come from? Do they live in the wild? You've never heard of wild hamsters. Why do we have hamsters I as know. house pets? We don't see, like, giant herds of hamsters, like, roaming across the plains anywhere. No. Oh, so, um, I thought to myself, I don't know. <laughs> so, I looked it up, and that's Yay! why we have our <laughs> rabbit hole. So, thanks to the internet, I do know, and now, so will you. Yay! So here's a little background on hamsters, thanks to trusty Wikipedia. Hamsters are rodents belonging to the subfamily Cricetinae. The best known species of hamster for house pets is golden or the Syrian hamster, which is the most common type uh, kept as pets. Other hamster species commonly kept as pets are the three species of dwarfs, dwarf hamsters, Campbell's dwarf hamsters, the white winter white dwarf hamster, and the rubskill Hamster. Hamsters aren't really nocturnal. They're more um, active during twilight hours. I had hamsters growing up.
0: And the adjustment to falling asleep with a hamster in your room, very difficult. Because those little fuckers do not stop. <laughs> like little wind-up toys. And then they also have like a shelf life of like two years. Yeah, we talked about that. And so when they die, the adjustment to falling asleep without those little fuckers making all that noise is very difficult. least, <laughs> <laughs> has a lot of feelings. I do. Just general about everything, really.
1: <laughs> um, in the wild, they remain underground during the day to avoid being caught by predators. They feed primarily on seeds, fruits, and vegetation, and will occasionally eat burrowing insects. Physically, they are stout-bodied... With uh, distinguishing features that include elongated cheek pouches extending to their shoulders, which they use to carry food back to their burrows, as well as short tails and fur-covered feet. Yes. In captivity, the hamster lifespan is around two to three years. In the wild, it's less than that. They have poor (laughs) eyesight, aka they're very nearsighted and they're colorblind. Their eyesight lends them to not have a good sense of distance or knowing where they're at. But the shitty eyesight doesn't stop a hamster from climbing out of their cages or being little hairy evil Knievels. Speaking of which, I had hamsters until my parents... We were
0: living in Toronto at the time. My parents came to Arnprior to do a house hunting trip because they were moving back to the area. And so I was staying at my friend Alex's house. And I went back home to feed my hamsters one day and they were gone. So they had gotten out of their cages and I was so upset because, like, moving again, like, it was, a whole, yeah. like, there was a lot going on and I was not going to lose those hamsters. Literally turned the house upside down. It looked like somebody had robbed my parents' home. <laughs> they were gone. And, like, I was really upset and I just left it. Like, everything came out of every single closet. Every like, it yeah. looked like we had been robbed. <laughs> and then the friends who I was staying with, their parents went by the house to, like, just check on everything, not knowing I had done this. It was a nightmare. <laughs> Did you find them? No. (laughs) And we were moving, so we figured we were going to find the bodies at some point, and they never turned up. So there was either they made a break for it, and they got out, and there's some sort of colony living in, like, Richmond
1: Hill, Toronto, or something got eaten. (laughs) I'm going to go for the eaten. Probably. Probably. Uh, Hamsters can sense movement around at all times. This sense helps them protect themselves from harm in the wild, but in household situations, it helps them to sense when their owner may be near and might be ready to pick them up or feed them. They have a great sense of smell and hearing. Uh, This helps them make up for not being able to see. Hamsters catch sounds by having their ears upright. They tend to uh, learn similar noises and begin to know the sounds of their food, even their owner's voice, the sounds of your footsteps over other people's footsteps. They're also particularly sensitive to high-pitched noises and can hear and communicate in, ult- in the ultrasonic range. Oh, cool. Um, They're but... like bats without wings. Oh, yeah. uh, Although pet hamsters can survive on a diet of exclusively commercial hamster food, Other items, such as vegetables, fruits, seeds, and nuts, can be given and should be. Hamsters in the Middle East, which is where they come from... That was my next question. Yeah. ...have been known to hunt in packs to find insects for food. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) The image in that. Wild. (laughs) Uh, Hamsters are hindgut fermenters and eat their own poop to recover nutrients digested in the hindgut and not absorbed. Rabbits do the same thing. Second harvest. (laughs) Well, it's just, it looks different than regular poop. Oh, okay. For rabbits, it looks like like a little um, clump of grapes. Okay. Whereas, like, you know, the rest of their poop is very dry and round. Yeah. Having rabbits, I know this. I wish I didn't know this. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> uh, behavioral char- uh, char- uh, characteristics of hamsters is food hoarding. Yep. They can carry food in their spacious cheeks, pouches to their underground storage Chambers when full, the peach the cheeks can make their heads double or even triples inside. It's it's wild. It's hilarious. Yeah, like I'm gonna feed you every day, buddy. You give them a baby carrot and they stick it in lengthwise.
0: <laughs> Love it. The bigger the baby
1: carrot, the funnier it gets. Most hamsters are strictly solitary. If housed together, acute and chronic stress can occur, and they might fight fiercely, sometimes fatally. Hmm. Dwarf hamsters. Dwarf hamster species may tolerate siblings or same-gendered unrelated hamsters introduced at an early age. However, this cannot be guaranteed. The most territorial are the Syrian ones. uh, Syrian hamsters or golden hamsters. They don't like Hmm. other people. Now for fertility and prepare to feel bad for hamsters. Hamsters can become fertile at different ages depending on their species. Both Syrian and Russian hamsters mate quickly. Mature quickly and can begin reproducing as young as four to five weeks. Oof. Whereas Chinese hamsters will generally begin reproducing at two to three months of age and some of the dwarfs at three to four months of age. The female reproductive life lasts about 18 months, which oh. since they only l- lived like two to three years yeah. is still a long of that. But male hamsters remain fertile much longer. Of course. And female hamsters are in heat about every four days. Oh, damn. (laughs) That explains a few things from my childhood. (laughs) I include this piece because I thought it was funny, but before sexual maturity occurs, it is more difficult to determine a young hamster's sex. When examined, female hamsters have their anal and genital openings very close together, Whereas males have these two ho- have those two holes farther apart, and the penis is usually withdrawn into the coat and thus appears as a hole or a pink pimple. Hmm. Good to know yep. for all of you hamster pervs out there. Yes. Syrian hamsters are seasonal breeders and will produce several litters a year with several pups in each litter with a gestation period of about 6 to 18 days. Dwarf hamsters breed all throughout the year and get pregnant and can get pregnant again just a few days after giving birth. Six to 18 days gestation. That is wild. And they can get pregnant within a couple of days. So you're popping out like maybe one, two litters a month if you're unlucky. (sighs) These poor lady hamsters with the gestation of just 16 to 18 days, if you could be unlucky enough, could be pregnant twice in a month. I was pregnant twice in my lifetime. Talk about Irish twins, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you're having, like, seven so Irish septuplets. <laughs> if you're lucky. At a time, yeah. <laughs> uh, female Chinese and Syrian hamsters are known for being aggressive towards the males if kept together for too long after mating. I mean... In some cases, male hamsters can die after being attacked by the female. And I feel yeah, lady hamsters. like Yeah, like, enough. Two litters in a month. Like, how about you cook dinner this time? Exactly. A female hamsters are also pretty sensitive to disturbances while giving birth and may even eat their own young if they think they're in danger, although sometimes they're just carrying the pups in their cheek pouches. If captive female hamsters are left for an extended period, three weeks or more with their litter, they might eat them for real this time, so the litter must be removed by the time the young can feed and drink independently. Yep. We found that out. The hard way. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so that's all great, and the real and a, a real the more you know moment. Uh-huh. But also, do hamsters... I'm, like, picturing, like,
0: Lord of the Rings-style battle scenes of just hamsters in my head. And I'm enjoying it greatly. <laughs>
1: uh. So, but do hamsters live in the wild? Yes. Yes, they do. In fact, there are 26 species of wild hamsters that run free in parts of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, including the Syrian hamster, which comes from a region surrounding... Uh, Aleppo, Syria. Aleppo, Aleppo, Syria, which is a city we remember as being very much under siege Mm -hmm. amidst Syria's ongoing war, Um, and they're actually considered vulnerable before that, and now they're probably even endangered, if not extinct, because they're not—they weren't very plentiful to start out with. Okay.
0: Larger scheme. Yes head on down to the pet store, put your three bits on the counter, and get yourself
1: one of these things. <laughs> so we'll talk about how they came to be uh, here in North America. Um, and I know you're all saying, but how did they become house pets? Well, dudes. Mostly white dudes. I'm assuming the Brits had something to do with this. No. Oh! Not really. The first mention of the Syrian hamster was when in 1797, when physician Alexander Russell came across them in the wild and described the rodents, although did not give them a name, in a publication called The Natural History of that place name that I cannot pronounce. Why can I not pronounce Aleppo. It? Aleppo. Jesus. <laughs> but it wasn't until 1839 that George Robert Waterhouse, creator of the London Zoology Society, formally is. named the species the golden hamster. Waterhouse described an animal with soft fur and silk-like gloss, with white feet and a tail, and the body color of yellow and lead gray. Its mustache, what we call whiskers today, was black and white. Waterhouse had one female hamster in captivity, and her pelt is kept at the National History Museum in London. The teeniest, tiniest pelt ever. (laughs) I know. But it wasn't until 1930, Israel... Oh. Aroni? Aroni, a zoologist and professor at the Hebrew in- uh, University of Jerusalem, went on an expedition to Syria to get some golden hamsters. He and his guide dug up a wheat field going eight feet down until they found the motherlode. By that, I mean a mother hamster with 11 pups. Aww. Israel put the family in a box thinking that mom would lock after them. Instead, as you can guess, she did what Lady Hamsters did, and when disturbed with her babies, she attacked one of the pups and chewed his head off. Mm. So they euthanized her. (laughs) With what? Like a (laughs) paperclip? Leaving Israel to raise ten babies by hand. Oh, boy. That's the most confused litter of hamsters ever. Not surprising to most people who've had hamsters, the baby not some of the babies nod their way out of the wooden box, yeah. and Israel got nine of them back. <laughs> so you would think. Yeah, but his house you- looked like it got robbed. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else who had that problem. Yeah. Uh, He would think if you launched a whole expedition, you might want to end up with more than nine baby hamsters. Yeah. But apparently, that's all he got. (laughs) And he had to dig for eight feet to find them. Eight feet down! He dug up a whole wheat field. (laughs) Like, bury people at less than that. Uh, Once they were in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University, another five-minute jailbreak, leaving him with just four hamsters. (laughs) But don't feel too bad. Those four siblings bred very successfully, and before he knew it, he had lots of little hamsters running around. Some of them had flipper feet, though, because inbreeding. The offspring were then sent to different universities and institutions, including the London Zoo. In the mid-1930s to the mid-1940s, they became pets in the UK. And the U.S. In 1971, another litter of 12 were found and sent to the U.S. However, recent DNA testing has pointed that all modern day pet hamsters are linked to the same female hamster. So they all come from that original litter. Dang, yo. Yeah. So that original four that he had has spawned in some way every single hamster. A jillion hamsters. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, fuck, they have two litters a month. Yeah. But, like, the concerning point is the fact that they
0: started with the very close DNA. Oh, yeah. So, at this point, I would not be surprised if, like, the hamster species is just becoming more and more inbred to the point where it's going to hapsburg itself to death.
1: (laughs) You'd think. Again, (laughs) they all came from the same four. Yeah. So, actually, that other litter of 12, they're not sure what happened to it. Because, like, all, again, all of the hamsters' mitochondrial DNA go back to the same... Eve. Hmm. Like, call her Eve. Well, I wonder if
0: it's that one hamster that spawned all of them, or if all hamsters, regardless of time, place, have the same. Hmm. True. Like, where's the line of demarcation on that? But regardless, Habsburging yet.
1: <laughs> but that's the how and why. Well, why there was a demand for cute-looking was there a demand for cuter-looking mice? Well, they breed very well. They are popular lab animals because they're used to model the human medical conditions, including various cancers, metabolic diseases, Mm -hmm. non-cancer respiratory diseases, cardiovascular diseases, infectious diseases, and general health concerns. That kind of bums me out. Yeah. But I get it. I also get it because that's how we end up with medical... Advances. Yeah. I'm not okay with someone blinding mice for mascara, but sometimes... For medicine, it has to happen. Um, as house pets, they're docile, inquisitive nature, cute, and their small size is a huge plus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Plus, I guess, the relative li- short lifespan and the fact that they don't need a lot of space is also a major plus for the parents who buy them.
0: Except once a week, those parents are cleaning out
1: urine-scented wood chips. <laughs> so. <laughs> so there you go. Yes. They live in the wild. They are considered vulnerable. They can be found in Syria, Greece, Romania, Belgium, and northern China. All golden hamsters kept as house pets are descendants from that first litter from 1930. Now you know. Now I know. Mm-hmm. Never thought you would want to, but now you do.
0: I mean, in all the wild world of things that I could, should, and probably don't know, hamsters never even crossed my mind as something to explore.
1: Neither did I until... Someone made that offhanded comment on the podcast of
0: how did we end up with hamsters? They're pretty cute. They are. Yes. Like, I'm not a fan of rats and mice as pets, but like, hamsters, for some reason, just seem less disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> They're cuter. They are. Except when um, you're young and you want to show how much you love them, so you hug them really hard, their eyes pop out a little bit. I did not have hamsters,
1: so I cannot (laughs) relate to this problem.
0: Well, I only, I like they didn't pop out of the skull. I mean, I learned the lesson pretty fast because it looks really freaky and terrifying. Okay, so my inspiration for my story this week came from the Weather Network app of all places. Hmm. Yeah, so I was checking out the weather, and then they have some news stories every so often, and I usually I don't pay attention or care. Uh, But the headline on this one was wild, and so it piqued my interest. Now, uh, you and I are Canadian. Yes. We know cold. We know from cold. Uh, We may not thrive in it, but we can certainly survive it. Yes. So the Weather Network story that I'm talking about uh, put our coping mechanisms to shame, and the headline was, Hypothermia stopped this woman's heart for six hours. Damn, girl! Yeah. So today I'm talking all things hypothermia. (laughs) Hypothermia. Because it is heading into our worst colds part of the year.
1: (laughs) My sister and uh, Amelia are coming up for Christmas. Which will already have happened by the time this episode airs. Uh, But the last time they came up for Christmas, it was the coldest Christmas. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like, we had a butt ton of snow. It was minus 25, minus 30 every day they were here. Yeah, that's like... Texas That's unfortunate, but like here it gets to be minus forty with the wind chill. Yeah, but not usually at Christmas. No, that's usually a February, yeah January It was like February. February the end of February, like weather. Yeah. At Christmas. Okay. At least this time it'll be hopefully a little less <laughs>
0: little. Climate change, man, it's weird. <laughs> Uh, so, first, let's talk about the mechanics of hypothermia, and this is from the Mayo Clinic, so you know it's not some WebMD bullshit where it turns out we all have cancer
1: in the end. <laughs> Hypothermia, no, you have cancer. <laughs> a
0: hypothermia is a medical emergency that occurs when your body loses heat faster than it can produce it, causing a dangerously low body temperature. Normal body temperature is around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. Hypothermia occurs as your body temperature falls below 95 Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius. So it's not really a lot. It's only a two degree differential between healthy and hypothermia setting mm-hmm. in. When your body temperature drops, your heart, nervous system, and other organs can't work normally. Left untreated, hypothermia can eventually lead to complete failure of your heart and respiratory system, and eventually to death. Treatment is warming the body back up to normal temperatures. That simple. (laughs) The first symptom of hypothermia is shivering. Uh, It's our body's natural reaction to cold as it generates heat in our muscles. Left untreated and unwarmed, the shivering gets worse and worse and worse. But, like, I'm surprised you're not shivering at
1: this point with your backless top. It's not fully backless. It just has a, <laughs> it's the thing
0: I grabbed. <laughs> Other symptoms uh, include slurred speech or mumbling, shallow, slow breathing, weak pulse, clumsiness or lack of coordination, drowsiness or very low energy, confusion or memory loss, loss of consciousness, and then bright red, cold skin in infants. I get that way when I'm high slash drunk, so... Things get a little dicey. So you have hypothermia. Not only are you risking death, but you're also risking frostbite, which, if left untreated, can turn into decay slash death of tissue, also known as gangrene. So we are not fucking around, people. Do not get too cold. And bad news, we were lied to in childhood by all those cartoons of St. Bernard's carrying a brandy cask into the Alps to save stranded travelers because alcohol is the absolute last thing you want to mess around with if you're suffering from hypothermia. Yep. Alcohol makes your body feel warm inside, uh, but it causes your blood vessels to expand, resulting in more rapid heat loss from the surface of your skin. The body's natural shivering response is diminished in people who've been drinking alcohol, and the shivering is your body's way of producing heat. In addition, the use of alcohol can affect your judgment about the need to get inside or to wear warm clothes in cold weather conditions. And if a person is intoxicated and passes out in cold weather, he or she is likely to develop hypothermia. Good Lord. So if you find yourself stranded out in the cold, do not trust any St. Bernard's that come your way.
1: Don't do it, man. Mm-mm.
0: Uh, The government of Canada is not fucking around with our dumb free healthcare services having asses. And Transport Canada has a website dedicated to surviving hypothermia. They put together the page because, quote, fishing and hunting are activities that generally start early and end late in the boating season. Waters are usually cold during these periods, exposing you and other recreational boaters to hypothermia and cold shock. And they differentiate between hypothermia and what they call cold shock. Cold shock happens first. And if you survive it, hypothermia can follow. So according to Transport Canada, quote, cold shock is po- probably responsible for more deaths than hypothermia. A sudden exposure to cold water can instantly paralyze your muscles, leave you breathless, cause you to swallow water, and suffocate you within moments of immersion. Yep. Should you survive the shock of the cold water, hypothermia is the next imminent danger. So, fun times. They That's identified... why Ufies
1: don't know how to swim. That's why so many fishermen didn't know how to swim. Because
0: it was pointless. Uh... Oh, I guess.
1: You fall over in the North Atlantic, even in July, it is not warm. Out. It's cold shock. Whereas, like, here, even if you're not an outdoorsy kid, you learn how to get out of a frozen pond fast and efficiently. <laughs> well, like, uh, growing up, the harbor's only flown, frozen over once in my entire life. Right. I'm 40. It froze over when I was nine. It froze over when my dad was nine. And that is it. Yeah. I mean, that water doesn't get up to above freezing very often but it has to be like dead calm Calm. for the salt water to freeze so we don't get freezing the whole lot but again especially where i grew up because the harbor is so deep it barely gets above like zero Mm -hmm. in the middle of august exactly (laughs) i'm making you shiver yes Uh, So
0: Transport Canada identifies three stages of hypothermia. In the first, you're shivering and you have reduced circulation. The second stage is slow, weak pulse, slowed breathing, lack of coordination, irritability, and confusion and sleepy behavior. Again, that irritability misnomer on me because I'm currently suffering from hypothermia in that case. Uh, Advanced stages, uh, slow, weak, or absent respiration and pulse, and the person may lose consciousness, leading to death. So that is the mechanics of hypothermia. But now let's break down the story that inspired me today. So late in 2018, no, sorry, late in 2019, 34-year-old British national Audrey Showman was hiking in the Pyrenees Mountains of Spain when she was caught in a snowstorm. Her condition had progressed to the point where she passed out from the cold and her body temp dropped to about 18 degrees Celsius.
1: This is why fresh air is for dead people, as quoted by the Morbid Ladies. There it is. So our friend Audrey was taken to
0: the Val de Brun Hospital in Barcelona, suffering from severe hypothermia, and went into a cardiac arrest that lasted for six whole hours. Usually, the fact that the heart isn't pumping blood into a brain would be a bad sign for a positive prognosis. However, because she was so cold, the impact was lessened. Dr. Jordi Riera, a member of the team that treated her, credited her low temperature with her eventual, quote, perfect neurological outcome. In-hospital, Showman was put on an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation machine, and this oxygenated her blood and kept it moving through her system as the medical team warmed up her body. After six hours on the machine, which they spent warming her up, the medical team managed to get her heart beating on its own, and they weaned her off of the external oxygenation. She's lost a bit of feeling in her hands, but other than that, is expected to make a full recovery.
1: Good lord. (laughs) Good lord.
0: If all you're doing is getting a little tingling at the tips of your fingers, like, you came out ahead. <laughs> yeah.
1: You were dead for six hours.
0: Yeah. And this was basically a proving case for what some doctors are purposely doing for their patients. Uh, there's a simple principle that makes hypothermia useful slash helpful in the right scenarios. And this is, information comes from a Quartz article by Olivia Goldhill. Uh she says that reduced body temperature means that the body cells have a slower metabolic rate so they need less energy and can survive without the breathing and blood flow usually needed to survive according to craig heller a biology professor from stanford quote hypothermia suppresses metabolism if it happens rapidly and significantly enough the brain doesn't suffer irreversible damage but if it's not enough or happens too slowly the brain can get to the point of no return so having clocked the potential benefits of hypothermia, some medical researchers are exploring the possibility of purposefully inducing the state in their patients. They started with, don't at me, pig subjects at a clinical trial organized by the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And in that trial, the porcine body temperature was brought down to 10 degrees Celsius. The subjects survived. Building on that success, medical trials started with humans in 2014. Uh, And the desired result of cooling down the body temperature quickly is resulted by pumping out all the blood from a patient's system and replacing it with cooled saline. So, and then back in with, like, a fridge full of IV fluid. Subjects are generally selected from patients who had suffered some sort of severe trauma, so think gunshots. Their body temps are drastically reduced to give the doctors time to treat the wound and to suspend the dying process. So this isn't like, you came in with a broken arm, do you want to test this out for it? It's like, odds are you're going to die anyway, you meet these criteria, we're going to give this a try to see if we can't give you a chance to to live. So severe trauma patients are selected for a whole host of reasons, but one of the most practical is that they've already lost a lot of their own blood, so it's not going to take a long time to get it out and replace it. The process of removing and replacing it with cooled saline can be done quickly and efficiently. And surgeon, the surgeon leading the trial will look for people who has already lost more than half of the volume of their blood in their system. Dear God. So.
1: Yeah, these are people who are not probably going to make it anyway.
0: Yeah, so you might as well take that help
1: Mary pass on it.
0: Once the injuries are treated, the saline solution is then again removed and replaced with blood, both the patient's own and donations. And the patient is warmed back up. Uh, the trial can only be conducted on patients who are expected to die, which means it's taking longer than usual to collect the definitive results, which I don't think anyone's too upset about, but like, yeah, it's happening. The use of regulated hypothermia is promising for the medical community in general. So a natural progression of the University of Pittsburgh study is the possibility of inducing hibernation in patients in general. So they're starting to do early work on putting like humans to sleep. For the cold season. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Uh, Beyond the whole put me to sleep and wake me up when you have a cure urban legend of this proposal, the European Space Agency is hella interested to see where it's going to go. They're currently working with scientists around the world to investigate the possibility of hibernation in humans. The idea of putting us to sleep in order to shoot us out into the wider universe for space exploration is what's drawing their attention. The fact that the ESA is interested means that the idea can get funding, which is always the scientific barrier for most projects. So watch out for that in the coming decades. And also read Early Riser by Jasper Ford. It proposes a world where humanity hibernates and is effing hilarious. I love Jasper Ford. And I love that book. (laughs) So there's another interesting wrinkle in the medical community's relationship with hypothermia, and it's playing out in India. This is going to make you bummed out, so bear with me as I get through it, because there is a good on the other side of the sad part. So in India, approximately 8 million babies are born premature each year. Premies are extremely vulnerable to hypothermia because their organ systems didn't have a chance to finish developing before they were born, and because they are generally underweight. So the combination of low-fat reserves and thin skin can be deadly, as a slight drop in temperature leads to catastrophic conditions very quickly. When a baby loses too much body heat... Well, when we all do, but it is extreme in babies, the metabolism shoots up in order to compensate, which uses up glucose and oxygen reserves, depleting the body of oxygen and glucose, and that causes acidosis and hypoglycemia, respectively, resulting in brain damage and even death. The issue of hypothermia deaths in babies is extremely relevant in India, where public hospitals are stretched so thin that there is often two to three babies to a single NICU bed. As a result of this overcrowding, preemies are usually discharged as soon as they are stable. Uh, So they're supposed to be like two or three kilograms. Usually the average is 1.2 kilograms are getting released. And that's like, what, three or four pounds. Uh, So they're getting released to mothers with, quote, illiteracy, low awareness levels, and burdens of household chores, which make them ill-equipped to care for the infants. And this is according to neonatologist uh, Jemmead. Somana, one of the docs testing a possible solution to the hypothermia crisis. So in response to the state in India, Bempu Health, which is a Bangalore-based startup, invented a medical device that was launched in 2016, and it's worn as a bracelet. It emits, It's put on the, the baby, and it emits a blue light every 30 seconds if the wearer is normothematic, so that means at normal body temperature. It then blinks orange and beeps if the body's baby temperature drops below 36.5 degrees Celsius. The bracelet has a built-in battery that lasts for four weeks, covering the period when a baby is at highest risk for hypothermia. And with no emission of radiation or heat, the device is safe for baby's use. And if it goes off, mothers are advised to initiate KMC, or kangaroo mother care, in which they carry the baby strapped to their chest for several hours to warm them up. Bempu Health developed and deployed the device with funding from USAID, UK Aid, and the Gates Foundation. And in the study around the device, Dr. Somana conducted, uh, he found that babies who wore the band received more kangaroo mother care, were breastfed regularly, and gained weight at a quicker pace. Hospital readmissions were remarkably reduced as well. So... As promising as the device is, there are some problems with it. The bracelet costs about 1800 rupees, which is the equivalent of about 28 and a half dollars, which means it's cost prohibitive for most households. That's a month worth of salary right there. For extremely small babies, the four week battery life just isn't enough. So you're asking parents to buy a second device when they may not have been able to really afford the first one. So there's some problems with that. But in light of these issues, Bempu Health has donated hundreds of devices as part of the medical trials and is currently working with the Indian government to get more out into the public hospitals. The National Health Mission in Rajasthan was so impressed with the early results of the study that they recently proposed to include the cost of the Bempu bracelet in their upcoming budget cycle, and they're currently thinking about purchasing 10,000 units. That's
1: nice.
0: Yeah, so that's 10,000 potential saved lives right there. So I wanted to close out my story with one of the wildest hypothermia stories I think I have ever heard. Um, this is a story that's been covered on a lot of other podcasts, including Astonishing Legends, which is where I first heard it, and an amazing book called Dead Mountain by Donnie Eicher. Uh, and I'm, of course, talking about the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass. Are you familiar? Yes. It is the wildest story. Like, Astonishing Legends is a good podcast, but for the fact that, like, for us just, like, can't shut up and is constantly repeating what Scott says like over and over again. So that's why I can't listen to very much of it. I listened to all of the of Pass episodes because they were really good. Morbid it did it too in and... early run. Yeah, because I heard that one from them yeah. too. Yeah. Um, because it's covered elsewhere, I don't feel like I can do a full story on it. Just I don't like retreading ground.
1: And Street Channel also did a searching for answers. Oh, like a on the History Diyatlov. Channel right yeah uh, but it's it's way of like sort of like the curse of oak island and stuff like that yes. they had like people in russia trying to get hold of uh classified documents yes cause a so lot that was, was still up
0: in the air yeah like it
1: was actually kind of interesting the yeah. little bits and pieces that we saw but yeah because it's covered elsewhere i feel i can't
0: do a full story on it so i won't go into too much of the details that led up to the spoilers, death of the hikers, but I do want to look at the connections to hypothermia that the story has. So, if this is the first time you're hearing about the Dyatlov Pass, here are the broad strokes you need to know. In 1959, a nine-member team of Russian hikers set out into the Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union, the then-Soviet Union. Uh, They were real outdoor nerds who were in some sort of, like, polytechnic university program for, like, outdoorsiness. I don't know. They were hikers. They, they they this is what they did. Yeah, like they were in school for it though. Like yeah, yeah. they would go on hikes for course credit and document like everything on it and come back. Give me like a forty page research paper any day with archival requirements and I'm happier than doing that. Like Except APA. Except in APA, because APA is the devil's style guide. Oh my god. Don't get me don't get me started.
1: <laughs> Her blood pressure just shot up. Shot well. right
0: on up. Oh, fucking APA. So from Snopes, uh, after being sidetracked by a snowstorm, they pitched a tent on the eastern slope of the Kolat Sialk. I don't know if that's probably not right, Uh, which according to Russian sources means dead mountain in the indigenous Monsi language. And they did that on the 2nd of February. That was the night that they died. Apart from the fact that they froze to death, no one knows why. When the hikers didn't return as planned, the civic authorities kicked into gear and they went looking for them. And in 20... 20- eventually. <laughs> eventually. Well, it was pretty fast for That's Soviet true. era. That's true. Dummies went out in the wild. Let's go see if we can't find them. Like, nowadays, we've got more important stuff to do. Uh, in 2013, the Telegraph published the following description of how the bodies were found. Quote, Investigators found footprints in the snow of eight or nine people who were wearing socks, a single shoe, or were barefoot. The footsteps led down a dense forest but disappeared after 500 meters. The first two bodies of two men, barefoot and dressed only in their underclothes, were found at the edge of the forest near the remains of a fire. The next three bodies of expedition leader Igor Zyatlov and another man and a woman were found between the fire and the tent, suggesting that they had tried to return to the tent. Autopsies failed to find any evidence of foul play. An inquest conducted uh, An inquest concluded that all five had died of hypothermia. Two months later, however, the partially dressed bodies of the other four members of the team were discovered in a forest ravine, not far from the first two bodies. They appeared to have suffered traumatic pressure or crush injuries, and the tongue of one had been ripped out. Otherwise, there were no external injuries, but tests conducted on their bodies and clothing showed small trace amounts of radiation. It was a bonkers scene. Oh, I know. They had pitched their tent at this kind of sloping no. but flattish plain coming off It was a mountain. really poor place to It wasn't skate. great. There was a forest kind of to the east of them, and then south there was a bit of a ravine area, so they found the bodies that looked like they had panicked inside the tent, cut it open from the inside, and fled probably before they were getting ready for bed, so they weren't dressed for the outside. But fucking panicked and took off in multiple directions, in pairs, and died wherever they just landed, ended up. So, like the investigators are
1: standing like what the fuck happened <laughs> there's no witnesses there's no survivors yeah. they had to piece it together some people didn't have clothes on but then there's some people who had a bunch of clothes on which yeah. posits that after the people died they took the clothes off of them right yeah so, so
0: some of them were found around a remains of a small fire that they were trying to light others were up a tr- like uh, clearly a tried to climb a tree but, bonkers <laughs> it was nuts uh, this story is popular amongst conspiracy theorists for a variety of reasons. Uh, possible causes of death have been suggested to be aliens, because there was bright lights reported in the area around that time. Uh, Yeti attack. They didn't help that because they brought a camera with them and they were creating like fake newspapers jokes, like the Beaverton for their trip. And in one, one of them had dressed up like a Yeti and they had taken a picture of it. So some people saw that and were like, oh, my God, there are yetis out here. I'm like, no, dudes, that's one yep. of the hikers. Like, calm down. Uh, another popular story for conspiracy theorists is that government forces were responsible uh, and they killed the hikers after wit- after they had witnessed some sort of testing because, remember, it was the Cold War and they were found with trace amounts of radiation on their body. They were in with a... With
1: weird crushing industry inju-
0: injuries. injuries. They were in a part of Russia that was not heavily populated so if there was military testing it was a reasonable spot to expect it to have happened so uh it didn't help that the official verdict was that the hikers died because they encountered a quote natural force that they were unlikely to overcome what the fuck does that mean (laughs) like is the cold the unnatural force they're unlikely to overcome is the yeti the force like what what are we talking here yeah Uh, Also, uh, what didn't help, but which field conspiracy theories, is that public access to the site was banned for three years while investigations were ongoing, and the results of the investigation were classified, and Soviet Russia loved nothing more than to classify all of their documents. So, even now, it remains a problem, uh, getting these historical documents out. So, the book Dead Mountain, which is an amazing read, by the way, uh, posits that the hikers pitched their tent at the worst possible spot on the mountain between... A rock formation And Near a rock formation And it fell victim To a concept called Infrasound Have you ever heard of this? Okay For my money This is actually what happened Like I've read the books Like I think this is what it was So from Snopes again Uh, infrasound is known as the karaman vortex um, street Uh, the phenomenon occurs when an oscillating pattern emerges in a fluid or gas in this instance it was created by the wind as it flows around a suitably shaped object in this instance a topographical feature like the mount that they were on it's like when you see ripples in a stream Mm -hmm. like it's that but it's with sound so it's creating weird sound waves when they occur on such a large scale, these wind patterns can theoretically generate very low frequency sound waves that have been blamed for harmful psychological and physiological symptoms in human beings. According to a 2001 review of the medical literature by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, such symptoms range from annoyance to fatigue to nausea. So the Legends talked about um, a trial that had been run in um, an orchestra, like a, an orchestra was putting on a performance. And the testers shot these rounds out into the audience. It's so like it was like a third of the audience responded negatively to it, a third didn't care, and a third responded positively to it. And they asked afterwards, like, how did you feel during the performance? And it was like, I felt anxious, I was stressed out, I felt relaxed, just like normal. Like, so they were testing that. So the idea is that these kids had pitched their tent on the mountain, they got hit with a wave of infrasound, probably one or more of them. Got panicked, anxious, and created this groupthink, this, like, mob mentality that wound everyone else up in the tent that got to a fever pitch where they all panicked and fled the tent. And then got out, got away from the infrasound, started to calm down, started to try coming back, but were already feeling the effects of hypothermia because they left without any clothing into the Ural Mountains without properly preparedness. And so that's why they died where they died. Hmm. To me, much more logical than... Yeti attack, or yes. alien. <laughs> uh, this theory, however, is still being debated. So, conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Far prefer the alien slash Yeti theory. What we do know from the autopsies, though, is that the cause of death for all hikers was definitely hypothermia, and if we think back to Transport Canada's description of severe and advanced hypothermia, it fits. So, in the severe stages, there's a lack of coordination... So some of them tried but failed to return to camp. There is irritability, which does that explain the missing tongue? Like, how irritable did you get that you inflicted this injury on your friend? Confusion. Some of them are reported as having been stripped down. Did they do that? That's another sign of hypothermia is where you think you're warm enough that you don't want clothes on. So you take off your own clothes. And sleepy behavior. Some of them look like they fell asleep and then died in the snow. So was it like that's kind of where they got to you? And then the advanced stages, slow, weak, or absent, respiration and pulse, the person loses consciousness, and obviously these guys then died. So there's still a lot of questions up in the air for Dyatlov, but I'll go with the easiest explanation, and that's mass panic followed by hypothermia. And it's why we as Canadians need to be better prepared, because it's going to take one very little spark at like an OC Transpo bus shelter on like a minus 40 day to go from everyone's just waiting patiently for a bus to, oh my god. We must all die now. <laughs> that might actually be the wait for the system to catch up with you, but you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bonkers because it's like yeah that makes sense, but then the like the injuries that the three with the crushing injuries. Uh, I think it was Dead Mountain posited that
0: um, they had tried to climb a tree, maybe to see their way back to the camp, and had fallen out of the tree. And so that's why they got the crushing industries. because the ones who fell were in the ravine. So if you climbed up the tree, yeah. then you're not just falling out of the tree, you're falling down the ravine as well. True. But then they had no external injuries. Like, that sort of still doesn't make sense, but... If you fell into snow on top of something. True. And then the um, radiation, some of them were working or were like roommates with people working in plants that had that same low-level yeah. radiation. That is easily explainable. Yes. God watches at
1: that time would...
0: Yeah. Glow in the dark because it was uranium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that is my story about hypothermia. And Woo-hoo. I thought that would be a good way to kick off twenty twenty. I'm colder. We've <laughs> got hamsters and hypothermia. There you go. We're have to find a clever way to link those in the title. I don't know. Uh, I have like four weeks to figure it out. Yeah. I think you you I'm, gonna need all many weeks. <laughs> I'm gonna need all of them. Many weeks. I'm gonna need all of them. So that is our show for this week. Uh, if you'd like to know more about us or to see the show notes for the show, check out our website, which is rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out the merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store and the Patreon
1: and the support tab, which takes you to our Patreon page. If you want to see what we're doing on social media this week, uh, you can check us out on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. Uh, on Instagram at rabbit holes Podcast and Twitter at rabbitholespod. Uh, you can also send us an email if there's anything you'd like us to explore, if you have any thoughts, or if you also have funny hamster stories or stories about hypothermia, we're at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we are doing, you can rate us, give us a review, uh, recommend us to your friends, and you can do that at pretty much any place that you are listening to this wonderful, uh, fantastic podcast. Except Google. I think Google's still not on that train. Come on, Google. Come on, Googs.
0: (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. There's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.